The book I'm writing at the moment is about relationships. Now, I'm not a relationship expert. I'm not a therapist or a psychotherapist. But they do say you should write so that you can teach what you need to know. And I'm always, <laughs> I guess, curious at least to know if I can make my relationships, both personal and professional, a little more vital and a little more resilient. It means that I've been reading some of the big names in the spaces. Esther Perel. I mean, her writing is great. Her podcasts are fantastic. Really quite moving, listening to her be a therapist to, to couples working through stuff. Um, John Gottman, you know, he's the author of the famous Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse <laughs> for Relationships, uh, a very powerful insight and model. And most recently, a guy called Terence Real, or Terry Real, as he's more commonly known. And he has a brand new book out called Us, Getting Past You and Me to Build a More Loving Relationship. Now, there was a phrase that was actually part of his marketing emails that really chimed deeply with me. Here it is. At a time when toxic individualism is rending our society at every level, the book, uh, Us, provides the tools to find our way back to each other through authentic connection and fierce intimacy. It's a big question, isn't it? How much are we our own person and how deeply must we connect? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Now, Kevin Ashton's latest book is called How to Fly a Horse. And I know this doesn't yet seem to have much to do with relationships, which you're just talking about. But if nothing else, that's a title that's going to get you curious. I mean, how to fly a horse, what does that even mean? But Kevin is also the guy who named the Internet of Things the Internet of Things. He is that guy. And he's been a key player in its growth and its imagination and its evolution. And if you're not sure what the IoT, the Internet of Things, actually is, well, it is that thing that allows objects on a network to connect without you know, needing human input. So it's everything from your smart fridge to those little Apple tags so you can track where your stuff is. In other words, it's now a very, very big deal. But every idea before it becomes a big deal is just some crackpot's mad imaginings. And Kevin might have been that crackpot. But even though it was an idea that nobody was really getting, it was also an idea that Kevin couldn't get rid of. And he had a self-created sense of urgency, one that I love. The sense of, if I don't act on this now, I don't know if I ever will. I had this screensaver that was called the death clock, which sounds very morbid, but it's actually fantastic. Um, and you kind of told it your year of birth and a couple of other things. And it basically figured out what your average life expectancy was. And, and then it started counting down. So every time my screensaver came on, there was, I mean, you know, I was 28 or something. So I guess I had 50 years, but you still see the seconds of your life. It's kind of, even if the number's wrong, right, it's undeniable that the seconds of your life are ticking away in front of you. And so I remember and that was definitely part of it. It's like, I've, I've got to commit to this thing because this is going to be much more fun than anything else I can think of. It's going to be much more satisfying than anybody else. So I sort of you know, took a deep breath and, and jumped into the cold water of it. 
If you've ever read How to Begin, my new book, you know that I actually start the book with a very similar idea. I tell people my death date, September 15th, 2043, um, calculated through um, actuarial tables. I'm just realizing I've got 21 years left and change. So I better get cracking on a whole bunch of stuff. Get, get that book written I've just been talking about. Anyway, this fomenting idea of Kevin's happened when he was working at Procter & Gamble, a big consumer goods company. Now, his boss had given him leave to play with the idea, but honestly, nothing much was happening because Kevin had a hard time finding anyone else who was thinking about the same things, who wanted to play along with him, play in this new space. But then one day, everything changed. A guy called me. I remember I was in my hotel in it was Cambridge Marriott in the morning, and a colleague called me and said, uh, I'm supposed to go to this meeting at the Department of Architecture and I can't make it. Please, will you show up for me? And I had like nothing else to do. And it was kind of about homes of the future or something. It sounded vaguely relevant. So I went to that and that was where I met um, Sanjay Sharma and David Brock, who were actually thinking along the same lines as I was. So Kevin had met his future co-conspirators. And while they were coming at it from a robotics angle, he kept coming at it at a logistics angle. And in that dirty, dingy basement office at MIT, it was a glorious meeting of minds. Now, ideas like this need money to have oxygen and keep surviving. But as I was raising the money, MIT reached out and said, we'd like you to come and be part of this thing and, and lead it. And I remember my, my reply, I mean, it was a like very flattering email, but I was, again, it was like, they, they don't understand. I wrote back and said, I'm not an engineer. You know, I have a liberal arts degree. I have an undergraduate degree in Scandinavian studies. I spent four years immersing myself in Ibsen, which was fantastic. Um, and they just replied, we think, you're an, we think you are an engineer. And, we, and um, I was like, oh, well, if MIT thinks I'm an engineer, you know, who am I to disagree? And so they gave me this weird, I don't know if anybody's ever had it before. So I think they made it up, but they called me a visiting engineer uh, and offered me a job. Uh, it's a hard offer to turn down when they basically invented a role for you. But Procter & Gamble weren't ready to let Kevin go either. So they did a little inventing of their own. As I was like deciding to do it, the CEO of Procter & Gamble said, you know what, uh, we kind of don't want to let you go. So we're going to loan you to MIT. I think they made that up too. I don't think I've ever done that before. So it was. I said, what does it even mean? And it was like, well, we'll keep paying you. We'll, we'll, we'll pay for your relocation. We'll keep paying you. If it doesn't work out, you know, you're still an employee. So this, this took all the, I'd already decided to do it, but this took all the risk away. And thus, Kevin became known as the father of the Internet of Things. But he'll be the first to tell you that that title is an overstatement. And he's worked alongside many other brilliant, talented people who've all been part of this important phenomenon. And in fact, when he reads his two pages, you're going to understand that this whole individual achievement thing might just be a distraction. Uh, anybody who's had any success in their life who doesn't realize that really there were like other people who probably had more to do with it in some ways than they did. Yeah, and we all have to understand that. It's like, I mean, like Dirk Yager is a CEO at Procter. I, I mentioned him in my book, but I'm pretty sure he has no recollection of any of this. Right. For him, it was a 10-minute what in a million decisions he made that day, you know, but you can, um, you can really change other people's lives with, with good choices. And if your life has been changed, you need to recognize who the people are who 
make mm. the choices. Let me ask you about that because, you know, mm-hmm. the book um, How to Fly a Horse is a, a book about creation and invention and discovery. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you tell the story, you've got people inventing stuff for you, but you've mm-hmm. also got the serendipity of mm-hmm. going to that meeting mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, and everything changes because you yeah. find your collaborators and you find your way in and, you, this, yeah. and the story begins. Is serendipity just a question of keep your eyes open or can you manufacture serendipity oh it's just probability yeah um i mean you hear a story like kevin went to a meeting and met a guy and that was the beginning of the internet of things but what i haven't told you is the other thousand meetings i sat through that were a complete waste nice. of time right yeah yeah uh, but without going to those you can't you can't have that thing happen right yes. so it's a little bit like you know you're in vegas and you like you put a million nickels in the slot, you, you might win the jackpot one time, right? Right. Um, right. It's, it's so, yeah, actually, you talk about serendipity in the book, and the original concept is kind of very, very different. But um, what we think of as serendipity today, like, you know, something fortuitous happening. Yeah. Um, it's really very straightforward. You you have to take a million shots, and, you know, one of them will will, will go in, right? Yeah. That's It's really that simple. So it's, it's about showing up mm. and persisting. I mean, doing it like not being an idiot and annoying everybody at the same time, but you know, right. getting invited back and what have you. But and also, by the way, you can't like go to the thousand things with the plan of well, one of them's gonna gonna be the jackpot, <laughs> right? Because that right. might not happen. You do the work. This is yeah. the thing I say in the book. I mean, the book is basically based on my experience of um, how innovation actually happens versus yes. the kind of the the airport, you know, seven things you should know about inventing and, you know, have an idea in the shower and magic and all this, yeah. you know, made up biographies of people that <laughs> aren't really accurate. So I was like, oh, this is all rubbish. So I'm going to like kind of set the record straight. I mm. guess that's how to, how to fly a horse based on my own experience. And um, the, the basic message of the book, which upsets a lot of people is you just have to do the work. Right. You have to show up every day for years and keep going, even when it's hard and even when you don't know what you're doing and even when you fail. And if basically, it really is, if you roll the dice enough times, you, you, you're going to get the result yeah. you want eventually. But you have to, you know, you have to stay alive long enough to, <laughs> so the, the sort of the, the, you know, the don't yeah. quit your day job is actually quite good advice. You need to be careful with your resources, with your time and your money. And so yeah. you can, you can keep trying again, but that's the answer to serendipity It's what happens when you do something a million times. Yeah. Uh, one one time something fortuitous happens. Really that simple. Kevin, talk to me about the book you've chosen to read for us because it's a great choice. Okay. Um, so it's quite a new book. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can see it, but okay. um, Finding the Mother came, Tree came out yeah. last year. Uh, Finding the Mother Tree by Suzanne Simard, who who I part one of the reasons I love it, but one of the reasons I chose it is she's Canadian, and you know I know she's you're an honorary it. Canadian, so <laughs> I, I thought am. We'd, would have some Canada in here. Thank now, you. Uh, uh, so uh, Suzanne is probably one of the greatest scientists of the 21st century. Uh, and very few people have heard of her. One, because she's a woman. Um, and two, because uh, she's working in a, in a weird field, which mm. I can relate to, because often the most interesting stuff happens in fields that either don't exist or are looking <laughs> in the wrong direction. So uh, there's a story in, in um, How to Fly a Horse about a woman, Rosalind Franklin, Right. Who who was actually the discoverer of DNA? Watson and Crick kind of right. just basically stole her work. Took the credit, so, yeah, know, yeah. Um, but the, the the 
Rosalind Franklin discovered DNA, the structure of DNA, because she was an expert crystallographer. And the reason she was an expert crystallographer was a generation earlier, women weren't allowed to do science. Mm. And they kind of worked their way into crystallography, which at that time was like kind of looking at pretty shiny things and cataloging them. But what those women did was very subversive. They turned crystallography into something completely different, which was understanding the molecular structure of things, right? But they kind of got into science through this back door. There's kind Mm. of no one was really interested in it, so the women can go do it. And then they turned it (laughs) into something different. Now, Suzanne Simard is a little bit Rosalind Rosalind Franklin-esque in the sense that her field is something called uh, forest science. Mm. Um, and if you look up the definition of forest science, it's basically learning about trees so we can cut them down and turn them into paper. That's right. That's right. Yeah, so the, the original kind of chauvinism of forestry science is trees need us to grow them and to figure out you know, what's best for them. Yeah. We need to be the shepherds of the trees. That's the idea right. of forest right. science, right? Uh, and why do we want to be the shepherds of the trees? Well, same thing as we do with sheep. We, we want to harvest them for our yeah. own benefit, right? Um, so Suzanne Simard is just someone who loved trees and kind of fell into forest science because she loved trees. And at some point during her research, she was like, well, hang on a minute, guys. Like trees have been here for hundreds of millions of years, and we've been here for like 50,000. So, you know. How how did they manage before we got here? If, if right. we're so important, you know. It was, it was, and so she started looking at trees from a completely different perspective, which is not that they need us, but probably that we're screwing things up for them. And how do how do trees actually work? So right. uh, she's one of one of several people who've really transformed forest science into uh, kind of this like growing things so we can kill them field sponsored mm-hmm. by the paper industry kind of thing, to actually deeply understanding the science of trees. And what she has been discovering, and she's really been leading this, is absolutely revolutionary. It's d- sort right. of Darwinian, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and one of my frustrations, and again, this is in How to Fly a Horse, is uh, women in science do all the great work, nearly right. all the great work. Right. And some mediocre white man always gets the credit. Like, if you're a mediocre white man, you've got a very high chance of winning the Nobel Prize. If you're a brilliant woman, you've got very low chance of winning a Nobel Prize. And if right. you do, you'll be sharing it with the mediocre white men, right? Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Suzanne can't win a Nobel Prize because there isn't a Nobel Prize for anything remotely close to forest science. I mean, she should probably get the Nobel Peace Prize, but you know, again, that doesn't right. really go to people like her. So she's uh, she's got a TED talk. It's not like, you know, and she's got a best-selling book. It's not like she's completely, completely underground, but, but relative to but her she's marginal. Yeah. relative yeah. to her importance, and yeah. I think what will be seen as her importance a few hundred years from now, yeah. she's she's not as well known as she should be. Yeah. Um, but the, but the work is fascinating. Her story is fascinating. Yeah. Uh, it's all very inspiring. Um, uh, and it's it, it's a book and a story that I wish more people knew. So that's why I chose it. I love it. And I'm going to ask you to read the um, two pages in a minute. But sure. I mean, how did you come across it? Did you just kind of hear about it on the on the grapevine or stumble across no, it? No, I was um, so. I'm, I'm writing a new book right now. Um, I just finished writing a new book. And, you know, most of my job, and I love it, is actually reading. Mm. You know, uh, I, I write narrative nonfiction, and I that, I tend to read a lot of peer-reviewed papers, academic research, stuff I know nothing about, and I have to, yeah. like, you know, look up all the words at first and make <laughs> notes. Of, and gradually, I don't, obviously, I'm not an expert, but I can kind of understand what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, and I was uh, one of the things I can't talk about the new book yet, but one of the things I was was studying was 
um, the nature of intelligence and the nature of emotion. Mm. Um, and I kind of asked myself the question like, well, what else has emotions? Is it because you get this stupid like phrase, oh, emotions are what make us human, you know? I was sure that came from Star Trek. I felt like it was something that, <laughs> that Kirk used to say to Spock, but right. apparently it isn't. But he, they, they certainly had a lot of you know emotions in, in Star Trek. So you get this, this idea. And I said, well, but, but my dog is very excited to see me. This was my right. point of departure. So like, that's an emotion. So how is it that like emo anyone who thinks emotions are uniquely human doesn't have a dog, right? right. That's really simple. Yeah. So what else has emotions? And I was doing this research and uh, trees have emotions. And I was like, what on earth does that mean? How do we know that? And and that led me to these kind of landmark papers in, in Nature and a few other big journals by mm. Suzanne, which were kind of, I think, scoffed at initially, which I can also relate to because all the right. best stuff is like controversial at the beginning. Yeah. It's a paradigm exactly. shift. Um, so that's but first I they laugh at you, then they accept your idea, then they claim the idea for their own. Exactly, <laughs> as the cycle goes. That's yeah. exactly the way it goes. And uh, so, you know, Suzanne, um, her papers are actually quite readable and really mm. fascinating. But uh, last year, she sort of wrote this memoir, um, and so it's a much more accessible way into her work. So uh, that's that's how I came to it. Beautiful. And I love that. And I just, you know, your story about reading widely, not fully understanding everything, but grasping the essence of it. It reminds me of, um, I think Thomas Edison has a story of, of needing to solve a problem, um, finding some German paper about it, yeah. not really yeah. having much German, but kind of figuring it out and reading through it and, yeah. and getting the aha breakthrough that he needed. Yeah. Then getting yeah. the papers translated and yeah. the papers meaning something completely different <laughs> from what he was thinking about. Oh, wow. About. I didn't know that. Okay. Um, yeah. and, well, and how, you know, it's like that ability. Actually, you tell us in the the first chapter of your, your book, How to Fly a Horse, which is like being able to press two things together fertilizes something unexpected. Yeah. And Absolutely. it's like those moments of fertilization are so powerful. Yeah. And, and I mean, I live in a world of Wikipedia and Google Scholar and Google Translate and Sci-Hub and all these. So for me... I don't have to go. When I was a student, I had to get like microfilm and all this nonsense. Yeah. But today I can do everything from my laptop. It's beautiful. Occasionally there's a book I can't get, but then I yeah. can get it used in a week. You know, yeah. that's yeah. my worst case scenario. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Ed Edison, Edison had none of the advantages that we have when it comes right. to finding things out. Well, Kevin, let's hear these two pages because this, okay. I, I, this is not a book I've read, although I've heard so much about it that I now I'm not sure why I haven't read it yet. And I'm excited for, to hear the pages. How, how did you choose what pages to read? Um, it's actually a hard book to select from um, because, uh, you know, she's building a story and some of the terms are unfamiliar and yeah. she's kind of interweaving her, you know, her brother dies while she's doing this research. And so she's into interweaving lots of things. But yep. um but this passage uh, is really the crux of it for me. This is kind of her moment of breakthrough. Yeah, uh, it's very relatable to me. I mean, we were just talking about not not that by the way, my my breakthrough is anything like as important as hers. But but it, I think it's there's something recognizable that I think anyone can relate to about mm. the moment when you you figure something out, whether it's like Wordle right. or you know <laughs> something that's going to win you the Nobel Prize. There's there's something very human about yeah. how she describes this moment Ooh, and also the problems that that, that then causes. So yeah. that's, that's why I chose this. I think it's a very nice distillation 
of of what the process of realization is actually like. Perfect. Uh, so Kevin Ashton reading from Suzanne Simard's wonderful book, Finding the Mother Tree. Over to you, Kevin. When the data came, I held my breath. This was it. The science was sound. The experiment had taken every variable into account. I was alone in my windowless office as I scanned the report. My cheeks burned as my eyes raced up and down the data columns. Again and again, I checked the numbers just to make sure. I sat in disbelief. Birch trees and fir trees were trading photosynthetic carbon back and forth through the network. Even more stunning, fir trees received far more carbon from birch trees than they donated in return. The birch trees were generously giving the fir trees resources. The amount was staggering. It was large enough to make seeds and reproduce. But what really floored me was the more shade that birch trees cast, the more carbon they donated to fir trees. Birch trees were cooperating in lockstep with fir trees. I reanalyzed the data over and over to make sure I hadn't made a mistake. But there it was, telling me the same thing, no matter how I looked at it. Birch trees and fir trees were trading carbon. They were communicating. Birch trees were detecting and staying attuned to the needs of fir trees. Not only that, I discovered that fir trees gave some carbon back to birch trees too, as though reciprocity was part of their everyday relationship. The trees were connected, cooperating. I was so shaken I leaned against the walls of my office to absorb what was unfolding because the earth seemed to be rumbling. The sharing of energy and resources meant they were working together like a system, an intelligent system, perceptive and responsive. Breathe, think, absorb, process. Roots didn't thrive when they grew alone. The trees needed one another. I sorted through a stack of papers documenting the competitive effects of trees on one another next to a growing pile of papers on how trees facilitated one another, which I collected because it frustrated me that researchers were firmly split into camps. Fights erupted in seminars and the forest was the victim. I had a choice. I could show everyone all of this, taking the chance that they would try to suppress me, or I could stay in my lab, hoping someone else would eventually use my findings. Oh man, that's so good. I mean, there's mm -hmm. two two big things here. I mean, one is the this insight around the interdependence of trees and how mm -hmm. trees are linked through fungal links and all of that, which we will talk mm -hmm. about. But just that story around the uncovering of it mm -hmm. <laughs> and feeling kind of an abyss open up where you're like, yeah. oh my goodness, I'm on the threshold of something extraordinary. And um, scary. And do I really want to take this leap, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, what what struck a powerful chord for you in this, Kevin? Um, I think that feeling of loneliness, am I crazy? Mm. Realizing that it's true and no one's going to believe you. Yeah. Um, and so knowing that, and you, I mean, obviously, 
she doesn't stay in her lab and hope somebody else discovers her work. She realizes she's got to run with this. And, and there's a lot of stake in terms of yeah. trying to change the way we think about forests. Um, but you, you can you can hear, and it's definitely true. This is not dramatized. You know, Suzanne is an amazing scientist. She's not the best writer in the world, which I kind of like because it gives her an authenticity mm. um, and a sincerity. I, I could absolutely tell, having been in a vaguely similar situation, that is not made up. <laughs> that right. is that is how it felt to her. It was yeah. like kind of OMG. I need to hold WTF. myself up against the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I kind of want to run away from what I've just discovered <laughs> because it's going to change my life and not necessarily in a good way. You know, yeah. I mean, and, and Suzanne is, I, as I understand it, someone who's much more comfortable, you know, uh, pun intended, in the shade, right? Mm -hmm. she, she'd much rather be out among the trees doing her thing than giving yeah. a TED talk. Right. Yeah. So this is someone who's like, well, I, I have to do something with this. I have a responsibility, yeah. an obligation to do something. And I'm absolutely terrified of it. And in a way, I'd rather not do it. And by the way, that's the perfect person to do it because she's not doing this for glory. She's not doing this for mm. money or fame or ego. She's doing it because she's compelled to by the truth that she has discovered. What have you learned, Kevin, about what it takes to? answer the call and cross the threshold just to use kind of hero mm -hmm. journey kind of language around that. Mm -hmm. Cause I think that's kind of what we're speaking about. Um, I think, you know, what, what I learned, uh, and there were other things I tried to do that I was very convinced were great, but what I was really convinced I think of was that I wanted to be great. Right. <laughs> so it was a pretextual, like what idea can I come up with? That's going to make me rich and famous kind of mm -hmm. like, you know, that kind of intention and then you convince yourself that the, you know the dumb idea you've got is awesome and you try and convince everybody there's a forcing mm. that that comes from this um you kind of sell yourself you try and sell other people um uh, but something like this um it pulls you it's irresistible it's a gravity right and in yeah. a way um i think you know from from my own lived experience it's those things that are the right things. Mm. You have to, you have to, to, to figure out what is the thing that you, you, you can't resist uh, that's bigger than you, you know, that's yeah. more important. I mean, my, my feeling about the internet of things was very much like the human race is coming to let 7 billion people. We need to get better at managing stuff, right? Mm. We need to become more efficient. We need less waste and, and so on. And that was very compelling to me right there was a there was a sort of moral imperative as well as all the interesting yeah. curiosity around coming make the technology work and so i think um you know the, the thing for me in that passage and, and, and in general is um you kind of have to find the things that pull you that you can't say no to yeah rather than the things that you have to kind of like <laughs> psych yourself up yeah. to get excited about you know and, and kind of retroactively just self-justify and yeah um, life, life is too short to get wrapped up in greed and ego mm. and just doing things because you know you kind of want the glory of it i think you have to get deeper than that and find the thing that you can't resist i, I want to come back to the book kevin but where mm -hmm. what you're talking about now just compels me to ask you this question you know if i look at suzanne and mm -hmm. her work that you're referencing Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm projecting, I'm making this up, but it feels to me that she's got her life's work set up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> She'll be doing this. Oh yeah. You know, she's not going to get bored. 
she's not going to get bored around this. She's no. going to be, you know, she'll be buried yeah. under the spreading roots of a tree somewhere and contributing yeah. to the network. Um, but but you've actually moved on and kind of reinvented yourself a number of different times. Mm-hmm. How do you know when to stop something, to walk away from something? Oh, I, ha- I mean, I haven't reinvented it myself. The, the post-rationalization of me, uh, I guess, changes because one minute I'm the tech Internet of Things guy and yeah. everyone assumes I'm some kind of professor computer scientist guy, which I'm not. Right. Um, and then I write a book and I'm supposed to be like an author guy, I guess, or I'm a, doing a business. I'm supposed to be like a tech CEO. These are all kind of like, it's almost like you're, you're the same actor playing different roles, mm. you know. But if you look at, I don't know, who's a great leading man, like a George Clooney or a Chris Evans, they're kind of, they're themselves and the character they're playing at the same time. Right. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like a, an outfit they've put on. Yeah. The great actors really invest themselves in the role. It's, it's, you know, if Meryl Streep was actually that person, this is what she would be like kind of thing. Well, and okay. I think, Let me ask you a question differently yeah. then, which is like, yeah. how do you si- decide when to move on to a new role, how to take oh. off the robes and then put on new robes? Because I don't, I don't. Yeah. Okay. I don't, I get something, something like, not excites me and i and i follow it and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but you know i think my um it doesn't feel like a stopping it feels like a starting mm. uh so it's always me it has to be true to me or it won't work but also it's like what what's what's igniting my passion right now right right um and i think i mean there's a there's a uh, a Thelonious monk quotation at the beginning of how to fly a horse which is a genius is a man most like himself, or the one most like himself. Mm. Okay, and and that and there's there's a, a a few people who I've seen who are you know very successful and, and very interesting people, and they all kind of say the same thing, right? So the 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 reason so the reason I push back on the oh you know you reinvented yourself is I think what I've actually done is discovered who I am and to hell with everybody else's ideas of who I should be. And the, the who I am is weird, right? Yeah. I'm into a variety of weird things. Yeah. Um that that for other people might not add up. But that's that's because I'm me, you know? Yeah. So I yeah. think I think you know don't don't be a cliche. Um follow the things that you find passion for, whatever they are. Yeah. Uh whether they fit somebody else's idea of who you are or not. And that so that's that's me. It's it's um, it's just about like so the MIT thing. I like came to a kind of natural end. We had a goal and we achieved our goal, right? Yeah, and yeah. So back into back into business for me. And here are some really exciting like tech things I want to yeah. do. Um, and then I kind of have an idea for a book. I'm like, okay, I kind of want to write that down now. So right. it's it's more about just being pulled in the direction of your passion than deciding to move on. If that makes yeah. sense. It does in theory. And my own experience in practice is it's often harder. I found it harder to let go of stuff that I've done in the past mm-hmm. to re reset myself. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a couple of years ago, I stopped um, being the CEO of a company I founded. Okay. And it took me quite a while to figure out what the next thing was that was calling me. That wasn't plus or minus 10% what I'd already been mm-hmm. doing yeah. because um, because it took me a while to get out of the valley of box of crayons. That's the name of the company, box of crayons. Okay. And I'm like, I'm right. I'm still in the valley. <laughs> and until I yeah. cross, cross the ridge line, I, get I, I can't yet really see the rest of the landscape to figure out what the next the next path might be. 
Yeah, but if, if you're going to write a new book, you start with a blank sheet of paper, right? It's true. So sometimes um, you have to recognize that uh, the thing that you're doing is you've taken it as far as you can. It's time for somebody else to do it. It's not mm. igniting your passion anymore. Yeah. I mean, I'm always someone who's much more interested in doing new things and like maintaining existing things. And there's no, there's nothing wrong with maintaining existing things. I'm just not good at it, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so... Uh, for me, it's like okay, uh, when when feasible, it's like I'm I kind of need to stop doing this thing because it's not mm -hmm. it's not as exciting as it used to be for me. And it's reached a point where I'm not the right person or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think you have to be comfortable with. And I don't know what I'm going to do next, but you have right. to make that space in your life. Now, this is the other thing about like capitalism, I guess, and the way we're all raised. This is idea that you have to be productive every day. Mm. Um, I mean, uh, there's this wonderful, I'd commend it to anybody. Um, there's this Japanese anime studio called Studio Ghibli. I guess it's not really anime, but animation. Right. Um, it's kind of this famous cultish, they make these cool animation movies. Um, and there's a, there's a Japanese TV series that you can watch for free, uh, with like subtitles online about. I forget his name, but the, the the main kind of director at the studio who makes movies. And I think for a couple of years, while the cameras are, uh, are following him around, he just comes into his office and screws around. <laughs> he's, he's waiting for his idea. Yeah. You know, So he makes a cup of tea and he scribbles something and he makes a few profound statements and smokes a bunch of cigarettes and goes home. And he does that for a really long time. Right. And he's completely comfortable with it because he's he, he knows – that he has to wait for the thing to hit him. He's kind of doing the work, right? He's kind of letting yeah. things percolate, but he's not putting himself under any pressure to produce. And right. I think what happens to working class people in, in a capitalist society, which is all of us, unless we inherited, you know, billions of dollars or whatever, if, if you've ever had to like go that's to not, work. That's so not you, really my listenership. <laughs> yeah, so you can eat, right? You're working class. There's no, right. no such thing as middle class. Yeah. It's like, you know, either you're working class or you're, you know, you've got Land more money than you know what to yeah. do with, right? Um, and so we have this idea that uh, if we have a day that's unproductive, mm. like, oh, it's the weekend. We're kind of allowed to be unproductive, but we've got all these chores to do, right? So there's this, there's this, uh, this false idea that you can't, Stop what you're doing, yeah. not start doing something else, and wait to figure out what the something else is. And if you have the means to do that, and if you live frugally, uh, you know it should be possible eventually for most people um, to have a little bit of downtime to think about yeah. what's next. Then that's that's the answer. You know, I yeah, think the yeah. fear of moving on often is because we don't know what's next. I think Kurt Vonnegut has a quote along the lines of the purpose of life is to screw around or fart around and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. He's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And now I want to say there's a lot of privilege in that, right? There you, is. Yeah. You have to, you have to be fortunate enough to have, and it's not a huge amount of means, but just enough means yeah. that you can screw around. Mm -hmm. But, um, and that might not mean, you know, you quit your job, right? But you might yeah. say to yourself, okay, I'm going to maintain what I'm doing now, but I I'm waiting for the next thing. Yeah. But I do think it's okay to to move on from one thing before you move on to another thing. You you gotta have a gap. Yeah. Um, you know, um, Kevin, we've talked about the the power and that um, those pages you read from Suzanne around the moment mm -hmm. of discovery. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I I can feel it, mate. I had yeah. goosebumps as you read it. Oh, good. Okay. But there's 
there's also the the actual content around what she's discovering. Yes. And I'm wondering how that discovery around this kind of interconnectedness and this yeah. wisdom and this emotion and this idea of mother trees and tree hubs yeah. and uh, yeah. you know fungal links and the like. Yeah. I'm wondering what impact that's had in discovering or learning more about that. Oh, well it's it's kind of like damn trees trees came up with my idea. 300 million years ago you know i and i push back one, one thing suzanne and i have in common is people kind of try and call it the internet of trees right mm. and i'm like hell no like mm. you know the internet of things is the myocausal network of humans it's like they've been doing it we've been doing it for like 50 years and they've been doing it for hundreds of millions of years right. the metaphor is the wrong way around right and right. the interesting thing about that is um you know trees are intelligent darwin was one of the first people to notice that the way we think about trees is upside down. Okay, mm. the bit that sticks out, the trunk, is actually kind of the tail of the tree, and right. all the, the 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 equivalent of brain, all the neurological stuff, uh, the sensing and processing is actually in the root bed, right. right? So when you see a tree, you've got to think of like you, you, the stuff you can't see is like where the mm. the true intelligence is. Um, uh, you know, the trunk is almost like an antenna in a way. Yeah. Um, uh, and so you look at okay. Well, if we accept that trees are intelligent, right. what do they tell us about intelligence? Because they've been intelligent for a lot longer than we have, right? Mm. And, and what you see, I think, is the future of intelligence generally is 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 in community and communication and right. networking, and not just networking with. This is one of Suzanne's great insights, and it's in the passage. The the, the original thinking, the thinking that she picked up on a little bit, was like, oh. Uh, yeah, there's a guy called Sir David Reed in the UK who was one of the people who said it looks like trees are communicating with their offspring. That was mm. kind of the beginning of this, right? And um, so there was this idea that of communicating with with conspecifics, members of your own species, particularly people you're related to, which again is a very human centric way of thinking about communication, right? Right. Um, and that's not to take anything away from Reed's work; it was groundbreaking. But what Suzanne did was like. I'm seeing some data that makes me think trees might be communicating with other species of trees. Right. And that's the bit I that's that's part of the breakthrough. She she mm. that, that this idea that trees are competing, mm. or that there's this you know quote Darwinian competition between species of trees or individual trees. What she discovered was completely counter to that. Yeah. That the forest is a community of organisms that collaborate across species boundaries across you know taxonomic boundaries it's plants and animals it's whatever you want right the way we divide up life is wrong mm. basically and so when i when i think about you know my work in like how do we make our machines more intelligent by networking them it's absolutely fascinating to see where a system that's been doing it for hundreds of millions of years ends up with this this incredible network that's not just communicating information it's sharing resources it's not just sharing resources with with other things like itself it's it's this incredibly like heterogeneous uh collaborative network uh and it kind of highlights the fact that this human-centric view of the world where we're like egocentric and then kind of species-centric right is profoundly naive it's absolutely ridiculous. It's as dumb as thinking, you know, that everything revolves around the earth or something, right? Right. right. And it's kind of the same idea, just yeah. rewritten, right? Yeah. So, you know, God made man and, the, you know, the world was God, man's dominion and man was there to, like, you know, shepherd the animals and take whatever he wanted from the ground. And, and trees are basically, you know, flipping the finger up 
like that. Yeah. They're like, yeah, we've been here a <laughs> lot waving longer than you guys. Yeah. And actually the way you survive for hundreds of millions of years is by cooperating and collaborating with mm. every living thing around you. And, and networking, bring yeah. it back to you know, your question, networking is how you do that. Yeah. Right. So trees have their own kind of Ethernet. Right. They have this hardwired network and they also have a wireless network because they also communicate through the air. Right. Yes. So they're doing everything we're doing in networking. They've been doing for 100 million years. We, we do it with stuff made of sand. They tend to do it with stuff made of fungus. Not always. Um, but there's a lot we can learn about the nature of intelligence, the nature of emotion, the nature of communication from the way trees do it. And something like the Internet of Things is this very crude mm. first step towards something that other species have been doing for longer than we can imagine. Has it changed the way that you show up and you build community? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's interesting because, you know, I, I was kind of guilty of the human-centered thing in that often when trying to explain the Internet of Things to a like a non-technical audience, uh, I will talk about the human nervous system as a, as analogous, right? Right. But people could understand that because they kind of got a nervous system. You say, well, you've got lots of fingers and you get lots of sensory information about touch and yeah. your brain like you know takes that and smell and uh, you know, multiple sensors uh, network together by your nerves. That's kind of like the Internet of Things, but but then you're like, well, hang on a minute. That's actually not the best analogy, mm. right? That's a still a very human-centered analogy. And so right. you start realizing that not the thinking has been wrong. It's been overly constrained. It's been too right. narrow. It's been kind of blinkered. Um, and we're still learning about, you know, the networking topology of trees. We're like just scratching the surface. This is, you know, you say about Suzanne's got her career made. I'm sure she's been like, I don't have enough time, you know. Right. Um, and I'm sure the things that, that her heirs discover will be even more remarkable because she's crudely adapting technology for other purposes to figure this stuff out. You know, as yeah. soon as we start like making tree specific tools for researchers and it all starts to happen. So um, I think, you know, for me, it's really helped me understand that the way I see the world, I'm kind of looking like this, but there's this whole mm. horizon that I should be taking. And there's this whole area of peripheral vision that I need to pay much more attention to. It feels like uh, analogous to the James Webb telescope and what that's going to discover. Absolutely. By, by decentering where you're looking yes. and uh, changing perspective, who knows what will open up, what new horizons Absolutely. will be found. Absolutely. Once you realize you're only seeing things from one point of view, that the people you're talking to because their people are kind of also seeing it from your point of view it's the same it's more more the same than you realize yeah um that's kind of mind-blowing yeah um so yeah for me it's 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 broadening it's phenomenally broadening intellectually to, to see this kind of work well I'm, I'm excited to learn more about the new book when it comes out um as a final question because i suspect the book will be touching on some of this but mm -hmm. um as a final question kevin and it's a broad one. Um, mm -hmm. What needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me? Oh, man. Um, you know, I think I'd, I would pick up on, um, you know, one of the themes from earlier for, for people listening, which is, you know, most of what you've been told is, I'll, I'll say myth. Myth is my polite way of saying bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
just as you know that hundreds of years ago people believed all sorts of stuff that was wrong right so so do we yeah so i think as you go through your life it is okay to find out what your preconceptions are find out what you've been led to believe challenge that find your own path uh be persistent be eccentric be weird be true to yourself figure out what that means yeah uh, and by the way, you know, you started to find it when things start to work in your life, you know, on every level, don't force stuff, don't resist things, follow your passions. Uh, it's a much more exciting path. You know, th- those seconds on your death clock are ticking down, whether you like it or not. Mm. You got the one shot, you might as well like do your thing yeah. rather than somebody else's. Here's the phrase that I'd actually quite like tattooed on my body somewhere. I mean, probably not, but I like like the idea. It tells you how important it is. Here's what he said. I think what I've actually done is discovered who I am and to hell with everybody else's ideas. Now, I'm still trying to figure out who I am, but I do feel I'm getting a little closer and a little clearer most days. What I take a stand for, what I stop doing, what I start doing who I keep inviting into my life, how I spend my resources, my time, my money, my attention. But saying to hell with everybody else's ideas, to their opinions, to their insights, to their wants and their needs, that is much harder for me. It's interesting just to notice that. And I'm also noticing that there's a paradox here because Kevin and I have just had a deep conversation about connection and about interdependency. So how do you be who you are and be part of the greater whole? How do you be a tree and at the same time a forest? We've had a few guests on Two Pages with MBS who have been exploring this idea of interdependency. So let me point out a couple of interviews that you might like to go back and revisit if you haven't heard them already. The first is Muriel Wilkins, an executive coach. She has a great HBR podcast on coaching and her interview is called How to Hold a Flower and Nicola Rahini is also a wonderful conversation and the title gives it away on cooperation and competition finding the balance between those two things and if you're interested in more on Kevin his website is is a bit tricky to pin down because he's a writer and he wants to just write but I would point you to his website howtoflyahorse.com Thank you for listening. I always appreciate it. Thank you for championing the podcast. Welcome to the new listeners, of which there are quite uh, a few. Um, Thank you if you have moved to give a rating or a review of the podcast. Thank you if you've passed the episode along. You've said to somebody, you should listen to this guy. He's interesting. This insight or this book in particular strikes a chord for you. There's is a membership site. It's called the Duke Humphreys. It's named after the favorite library of mine from Oxford University. It's where there's some extra cool stuff, interviews we haven't released, transcripts, and the bits and pieces that you can download. So if you're interested or curious about that, just uh, go to mbs.work slash podcast and you'll find your way to the Duke Humphreys. You're awesome and you're doing great.